Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the one holy and living God. Amen. A number of years ago, I attended the walkabout for the election of a bishop in Vermont. This particular election was that of Dan Swenson. And Ken Coston, sometimes rector of St. Peter's Bennington, looked Dan Swenson in the eye and said, what is your Christology? It's a fantastic question. And I'll get back to that one in a minute. I want to do a little digression because it's a good story. Sally Swenson was legendary for telling this story. She used to pray for her husband to attend church once in a while with her. And he actually joined an Episcopal church's basketball team. And he played basketball for a while, and then he actually made it in the front door. He was elected Bishop of Vermont from White Bear Lake in the Twin Cities. And she would go around saying, be careful what you pray for. (laughs) (laughs) Dan used to drive around Vermont in a red, cherry red pickup truck with his crozier in the gun rack. (laughs) A little subtle message there, I think. Anyway. Back to the gospel. Matthew has an agenda. Matthew wishes to paint Jesus as in line with the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures. Not that alone, but start there. Authenticating Jesus' message. The last of the great prophets is Moses, and then you have Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What's the scuttlebutt? Now, if you roll back the time clock a little bit, I'm sure you can imagine what the small town chat was like when Mary ended up pregnant out of wedlock. You've probably heard similar things in Arlington about people. And can you imagine what the neighbor kids said? He thinks he's the son of God. Oy vey. (laughs) 
There's actually an apocryphal story that comes from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus apparently was having a bad day, and one of his neighbor kids messed with his clay birds. So Jesus zapped him. It's kind of obvious when you read that story why it didn't make it into the canon of Scripture. So these rumors are floating in the area, and Jesus is checking in with the disciples to hear what they've heard. But he also wants to hear what they think. And Peter responds, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Sounds all all relatively straightforward, except in the day, the expectations would have been that the Messiah would have been a military leader that the Messiah would have intervened politically and thrown the yoke of oppression off the backs of the Hebrew people. Is that what Jesus does? He does almost the exact opposite. In some measure, his life and ministry is a failure. If you just end with the crucifixion and death. It's downward mobility writ large. You get a bit of a picture painted of what's different in his ministry from Philippians. He did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And the word for slave is that of a household Roman slave. Dulos. Very different picture. Very different expectations we get this rather strange piece at the end of the gospel where Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. You wonder how much he's trying to manage the message about what he's about. There's a couple other things going on in the passage. That whole impressive piece that sounds like an endorsement of the Roman church. This is Peter. The pebble that I will build my church on. The word is pebble. It's not rock. It's ironic that the church, that is you and me, not the building, that the church would be founded upon a fallible person. Remember, Peter betrays Jesus three times. And in John's gospel, you get that little interview on the seashore. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And John records that Peter was cut to the quick because Jesus asked him a third time the same question. In the Orthodox Church, if you've ever been to one, I know some people have, there's one just a little ways from here, New Skeet. Uh, If you've been to the Orthodox Church, you notice something. In the dome, there is a picture of Christ the judge, Christ the Pantocrator. i point out something that's a little different about that judge. It's this. It's a blessing judge. It's not a condemning judge. That's the first difference. Next row down are the apostles, prophets, and martyrs, and the iconostasis ends at shoulder level. And guess where it continues? In the gathered assembly. In 1 Peter, the author speaks to the newly baptized, and he says, once you were not a people, now you are a people. You are living stones to be built into a temple for the worship of God. 
very different image sometimes than we have of church. That question to Dan Swenson by Ken Costin, by the way, if you don't know Ken Costin or didn't know Ken Costin, he was your quintessential British schoolmaster. Mm -hmm. um, he was the chair of the Commission on Ministry when I went through the process, so I know Ken pretty well. <laughs> he had lots of questions for me. That question, who we think Jesus is, has direct implications for what we think the church is. That theology of Christology is indicative of how we hear life as a church being. I said last week that the central ethic for Christianity is a heroic ethic. That is life lived in service of others. I also went on to say that there is no event horizon that allows us to shut out risk. Pretty scary in some ways. In other words, in the words of Benedict, the stranger is to be welcomed as Christ, him or herself. And in the early church, the stranger was the agent for the renewal of the church. That first hymn we had, Father, you have planted, just a digression, that's one of the earliest Eucharistic prayers that we have from second century. Think about that for a moment. There are actually two resurrections recorded in the New Testament. You didn't know that, did you? One is Jesus, the other is the church. You have a band of harassed, fearful disciples hiding in the upper room. And then you get in Luke-Acts the record of their becoming the body of Christ together. Our former presiding bishop, Frank Griswold, used to say this, repeatedly in the midst of some of the worst controversies that we've gone through as the Episcopal Church. You probably remember some of those. Little things like the ordination of women and other things like that. Gene Robinson, breakaways, la la la. He would say, I cannot say I have no need of you. And what he meant by that is our salvation is bound up in the relationships that are manifest within the body. You heard it in the Romans lesson. The Romans lesson pushes us to look at the countercultural nature of the church. That the central vehicle of our spiritual lives here is transformation. Think about that for a minute. Do you expect to be changed by coming to church? I would bet, if I'm not wrong, that most of us put comfort or solace or something else up on the list before change, right? Probably. You're not unusual if that's the case. That transformation is the capacity to see and perceive the inbreaking of the reign of God here and now. In a few minutes, we'll do the, it shows up two places in the, in the liturgy that I want to point out. The confession, it says, keep us in eternal life. It doesn't say give us eternal life. It says keep us in eternal life, starting now. The other is in the post-communion prayer where we talk about gladness and singleness of heart. That's a rough translation for a very old concept. The capacity to see the presence of God 
or if you want the term for it, it's beatific vision. That we can learn to see God's presence in and among us. Now here's one disadvantage Episcopalians have. I'm going to make a little joke here, but we will talk about sex before we'll talk about our experiences of God. Now I have this theory that this is all in the gene pool from the Church of England when talking about religion could get your head cut off. I, I think it kind of got in the gene pool and we, all, we just don't talk about it because it's dangerous. <laughs> it was treasonous actually in certain parts of, of England during Elizabeth's reign. So, I want to encourage you, and this really is directly related to Christology, believe it or not, encourage you, as you're comfortable, to begin to talk about your experiences of God. Why would that be so important? You know how hope is created? Hope is created by a corporate understanding of God's movement within us. Now, I'm not saying you have to tell all your deep, dark secrets. But, you know, start with the times that you have come here and been fed, either literally or figuratively. Start with the times where someone in the congregation was there for you when you were in a time of need. Talk about those times where you came here in a really awful week and left changed. You're going to find that if you do that, we'll remember something essential which is the, the central proclamation of the gospel is good news. And that can't be theoretical. That has to be concrete and actual. Amen.